And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Welcome everyone, I'm Willie Grills. Back with us is the Reverend Zelwyn Heidi. The runic curse has been broken and he has been permitted to return to the podcast. Zelwyn, how are you? <laughs> well, I'm out on the lamb apparently. So, But no, I'm doing well. I'm feeling a little bit better now and glad to be, be back. I was kind of under the weather there for a little bit, but things are going well. How about for you, Willie? Oh, can't complain, can't complain. The uh, weather has been rather mild here, although we did have quite a bit of rain this past week, so had to get several sump pumps going, some auxiliary pumps going in the basement, but that's the price of living in on such fertile ground here in central Illinois. How's the weather out your way? Well, it was about 10 below today, and it kind of snowed a, a little skiff yesterday, not a whole lot, so... We're definitely entering into the, the coldest part of winter for North Dakota, so I guess it's time to bundle up a little a little tighter, and hopefully things will be a little bit warmer. Would, would you say this is the closest you get to happy in a given calendar year? <laughs> I do enjoy the cold, <laughs> because I'm kind of weird that way, I suppose, and also because I'm kind of hot-blooded anyway, so cold weather keeps what do you, me... What do you prefer? Cool... cool Cold, frigid North Dakota winters are a good waller and hole. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm kind of a fan of fall and winter, so that's just kind of the way I roll. There you go. Well, hey, good to have you here. We had to postpone this episode uh, due to due to illness, but we are going to go ahead and run it. I think early, uh, so that or you know at least early in our typical Thursday cycle. This is the worship episode. So we're going to talk about worship, probably the first of several episodes where we'll do this. Worship being a perennial topic among Christians, the subject of a lot of uh, ink spilled, and maybe even some blood spilled, certainly a lot of debate around Christian worship. And that should tell us something, right? That because it is such a hot topic year after year, that might indicate to us that it is a rather important topic. And unfortunately, it has led to a lot of division, a lot of derision, a lot of friction for some good reasons, some bad reasons. And so we're undertaking the topic here now. So the first question is going to be, and for you, Zellen, what is worship? What's our operating definition? Well, and that's what kind of makes it so difficult because, you know, how do you actually define what worship is, you know? When we come when we come down to the question of the word itself, you know, it can mean different things in English, and the way that the Bible uses it seems to be, you know, fairly clear. So, I think probably the most basic definition of worship would be kind of a, a twofold action happening, and that is on the one hand, the Lord coming to us and bringing us His gifts, 
and also, on the other hand, our response of thanksgiving and adoration toward him. So it's kind of this reciprocal action going on between the Lord and be- and between us as well. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, yes, certainly, certainly. Both aspects are very important. Um, in this day and age, there is one aspect that we tend to emphasize more than the other. We'll get to that. But yeah, certainly both aspects are important. They are at the heart of a right definition of worship. Sometimes worship is reduced just to the kind of music used or the ordo, you know, the liturgy used. And that's all part and parcel to the debate, but it's not the basic definition. The How we understand the basic definition determines how the rest of the things look and right. play out, I would argue. Right. Well, and, and a lot of the debate that centers around worship has to do with kind of emphasizing one of these aspects over the other. You know, some will really emphasize on the one hand, you know, God coming to us almost to the detriment of our response to the Lord and his gifts. And then on the other hand, you'll have people who will emphasize our response to the detriment to what it is that the Lord is doing. So we don't want to get caught up in, like you say, debates about the music or the styles or, or, or whatnot. We'll talk about some of that later, but at, at the heart of this issue, at the heart of understanding what we mean by worship in a biblical sense, is this basic action. Yeah, if, if, if we eliminate either of these aspects, both the adoration due to God and the receiving of God's gifts, then we get a skewed view of worship. On the one side, you end up with just human mailboxes, and right. on on the other side, you end up with, I mean, for all intents and purposes, some kind of Baal worship or the Temple of Artemis style worship, <laughs> where you're just trying to placate God, give him enough of what he wants, so he'll give you what you want. And right. and so to have a, a balanced view, uh, excuse me, that's a, that's not a, that's not the right word. That sounds like we're um, seeding ground. To have a biblical <laughs> view, to have a biblical view is to have both of these aspects. Yeah, I I don't want to give the idea that we're trying to find a middle way here. I'm not convinced that with God there is a middle way, (laughs) but uh, there just is one narrow way. So, yeah, so let's talk about the two aspects then. Which one would you like to start with? Well, I think the one to start with would be what God is doing toward us, kind of the the downward aspect, if you want to call it that. I don't know. I don't know what a good way to describe it. Can we say condescending? Or does that, or do you think that that's too that implies too much? Say Christ's humiliation coming down to us. That might be theologically confusing if we use condescension. Yeah, I, so. I think maybe maybe just the Lord's action. You know what He does for His people. There we go. Is, that's a good one. Because we see this kind of thing happening throughout the Bible. I mean, everywhere. The Lord coming to His people, bringing His deliverance, bringing His salvation, whatever the case might be. And talking about that downward focus, that toward us focus aspect of worship, I think would be a good place to start. Sure. So So in Old Testament worship, what does that look like? Well, in Old Testament worship, the the Lord coming down to us, of course, would be things like the the glory cloud within the the tabernacle, the, the visible manifestation of God's presence among his people. Uh, would be one part of it. 
you would also have just the Lord doing his wonders and doing his miracles for his people. So, you know, the way that he delivers them, coming to them in Egypt and, you know, bringing them out of Egypt, you know, bringing them through the Red Sea, all of these salvific, salvific redemptive acts would be examples of what the Lord is doing for his people, especially what, in the Old Testament. What about in the regular temple worship? This is where we start to see an even clearer picture of both of these things happening. So in the temple, God is dwelling there with a specific presence, and that's going to be important all the way up into New Testament worship, I would argue, too. Although in right. the New Covenant, the veil is rent in twain, in New Testament worship, God is still specifically present within the service for a specific reason. Stay tuned to find out what. <laughs> but even though it's the priest slaughtering the animals and the people bringing forward their sacrifices, God is still there delivering from their sins via those means. Yeah. No, the, the, even though the, the blood of bulls and goats don't take away sins, as the book of Hebrews tells us, they are pointing towards that redemptive act, which Jesus will do for us. And therefore, they are receiving that forgiveness in the Old Testament through what, you know, God coming down to I mean, them. And even though it's pointing toward the sacrifice that will come, it's still of a slightly different character. I mean, what is similar? The shedding of blood brings life. Right. It, bring, it, right. it heals that division between God and man. And yet, the sacrifices of the temple had to be offered continuously. Right. Which is different from, from New Testament worship. And yet, similar in this way, that although the sacrifice of Christ is once for all sins, we continually need forgiveness, the same as the Old Testament saints. And so, therefore, we're still going back to God's temple, continually receiving from him good his good gifts, even though the means has changed. And right. I think that's a, I think that's right. a I think it's safe to say the means has changed. You know, some people might quibble <laughs> a little bit, but you're not slaughtering pigeons anymore. We're we're not ringing. We're not trying to build the third temple here, Willie. So. Exactly. We we did a whole episode on why you shouldn't do that. <laughs> so right. So there, there's the um, God delivering His gifts to His people. Now, what about the people? Do they have a role in worship? Is it is it proper to say that worship is, in some sense, what what the person is doing toward God? I think it really is, because very often when you look through the scriptures and you, you find, you know, just places where it talks about worship or, you know, fell down and worshiped the Lord, it's always, almost always in response to something that the Lord has already done. So in that moment, you're seeing both aspects, these twin aspects of receiving and also giving, because the Lord has done something and then the person responds with that thanksgiving, responds with that adoration towards the Lord. So yes, I do think, and we'll talk about a lot of this adoration and thanksgiving um, in the second section, but yes, there is a response for us and a part that we have in worship, and we should not try to overlook or deny that. Right, right. Because so often I think we get so caught up with the God coming to us and delivering his gifts to us, which is certainly a part of it, that we forget that our worship, our response to that action is just as equally as just as much a part of this as is God's coming to us. Right. Do we want to clear up some misconceptions about that while we're here? Or do we want to wait until a little bit later? I want to I want to keep the the response part, the adoration, thanksgiving in the second section. So 
we should probably maybe we should clear up some misconceptions about the the first part. Okay, let's do that. What's a what's a misconception people might have about adoration, or excuse me, about God's bringing His gifts to us? Well, sometimes I think one of, some of the misconceptions that we might have is that with with this idea of God coming to us, well, actually, I mean, if you if you think about it, a lot of these misconceptions center around you know what part do we have in all of this because we know what it is that the Lord is doing for us, right? Mm-hmm. We know what He has done for us, and yet how do you know how do we respond to that you know is it just that god is only acting and we just kind of like you said we're, we're mailboxes or we are simply i don't know just that's the only thing that we do as if I'm, how do you want to break this down willie help me out here well i mean it's a question of is god deserving of worship right sure. see that, that's what i'm saying we almost have to to discuss both of them together at least so the misconception that some people have is that we are purely passive in worship. Right. And I know we're treading on some uncomfortable ground for some people, but you do actually participate in this. And there is a response to your reception. There is a petition that God bless you, even within our worship. Uh, there is an expectation that when we confess our sins, we would receive absolution. Confession and absolution are, are two parts. And so, you know, worship and praise, we we have the sacrifice of thanksgiving, all of these things whereby we are petitioning God for something. And in response to God giving it to to us, we are offering him praise and thanksgiving. And, And praise and thanksgiving is more than simply saying we offer you praise and thanksgiving within the liturgy, you know. Right. Maybe that's the one of the best ways to start with this misconception is the the idea that these two can somehow be separated at all. That right. God acting is somehow acting in a vacuum and we just kind of I don't know are just there so that God is, you know, doing all of these things whereas, you know, God's action towards his people is is never done in a vacuum, and it always necessitates this kind of response from his people. So right. the, the very idea that they could be separate at all, I think, is one major misconception yeah. we well, might have. One of the things that Lutherans often say about Calvinists is that they make human beings into robots, into automatons. And, right. okay, that might be a fair criticism, but we can point that finger at us, too, because we're guilty sometimes of explaining worship in that way. Of, of either not even being uh, robots because robots move, but just kind of a simple machine that kneels and stands. And then that's kind of it. <laughs> but the liturgical responses are meant to be things that we intentionally do, that we actually are aware that we're doing. You're supposed to pay attention to the words that you speak and to sincerely mean those words. Uh, it is very easy, and we've all done it, to just get used to the liturgy, go through the motions and just say the words without thinking of them. But that's not right. the heart of uh, of Christian worship. We are meant to be active participants in worship. That does not mean clapping your hands and and waving them around and all, and all that kind of stuff that we've come to associate it that we've come to associate with quote unquote active worship. Rather it it is actually sincerely confessing Things, be it our sins, be it our confession of the faith, and then truly expecting to receive what God has promised to give us when we ask of Him. So, and, and, and again, it's not as if you hit 
all the magic notes in page 15. And so now God can properly bless you, right? It's God actually right. hearing our uh, <laughs> our words in in the liturgy and responding to them. And maybe, and maybe another way to put that too is, you know, we don't want to think of worship as being, you know, we bring forth our action first, and therefore God is then going to respond to us. Correct. In the in the way that, you know, we can some, like some pagan deity that if Bingo, we just exactly. babble loud yeah. enough, we'll get his attention. Right. King Poseidon really likes rams, so we're going to hurl a bunch into the sea so that he can be placated and give us good weather for our <laughs> sailboats. I mean, every every... Every time in like the Old Testament, for example, and you have God acting, you know, doing something for his people, you know, it's emphasized over and over again that he's doing this despite their unworthiness, despite their their sins, you know, because he is going to do this for the sake of his holy name. God is always bringing his salvation to people who don't deserve it, who then react to that. And that's as much a part of worship as God coming to us in the first place. Correct. And this is why I keep mentioning the liturgy. And by that, I mean like our liturgy, which acknowledges all of these things. If we didn't have an historic liturgy, we could easily veer off into a pagan understanding of worship. But our liturgy acknowledges that we don't deserve any of this. And we are pleading for mercy within the service because we are undeserving of what God would give us. So early on, I'm talking about expecting this result in a, in a pious faith, not demanding it, not, not treating it as if, well, I've paid my dues and now God, you have to pay me back. So you do have to filter it through that, through a proper lens here. And again, I think that's, that's one more case where a good liturgy is important because we can very quickly do, devolve into false religion if we're not careful. Right. And we also don't want to, you know, take that good liturgical understanding and also veer off with it as well, because you can easily pervert the liturgy into just that very thing. Certainly. But but when we, you know, use the liturgy in the way that it's intended to be used and as an expression of our worship and this twofold reaction, interaction, I think it is a wonderful gift and something that I think we'll talk about in a little bit more detail uh, towards the end of this podcast. So, Well, we're coming up on our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all them that trust in him. The book that sits on your shelf, The One Gathering Dust, word fitly spoken, asks you to once again take up and read. Hear the words of the only wise God and be saved. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Delwin Heidi, talking Christian worship. Why it's important, why it matters, why we need to understand it rightly. Well, we've laid down the groundwork for this discussion, um, talked a bit about what worship is, defining both aspects to it, both the human and the divine. And eventually we're going to get to those liturgical questions that everybody is listening for. But first, it's time for Bible posting. We need to look at some biblical passages about worship, how the Bible understands worship, both in positive and negative examples. And by negative examples, of course, we mean people who are worshiping in wrong way. We're talking about uh, idolatry here. So, strange, right, fire. Well, yep. strange fire. There we go. So let's talk about some positive examples here. How is worship depicted in the Holy Bible? Well, I think the first passage that we should uh, tackle in this discussion would be uh, Psalm 96, although one could argue that the Psalms in general are very good examples of this worship that we're talking about, and especially the idea of our response to what God has done. Mm -hmm. But I want to look specifically at 96 because it gives us at least somewhere to start. So you have... Psalm 96, you know, oh, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. So you have this, you know, this, this singing, this declaration of what it is that God has done and, you know, actually declaring it. So this idea of, you know, actually telling other people about what God has done is actually a part of worship. You know, who would have thunk it, right? Right, yeah. Declaring who God is and what he has done. Right. Uh, you know, and declaring means like not shadow boxing, but actually, you know, to whomever. Right. And, and, and also not just within the context of Sunday morning, although that's, you know, part of it certainly, but also the part, actually the act of witnessing itself would be an aspect of worship because we have God having done these things for us. And therefore we, in gratitude, in thanksgiving, tell others about what he has done. I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, actually spreading the word is in itself an act of worship as well, right? Mm. Yeah, and, and perhaps that's, you know, a good example of worship occurring outside of Sunday divine liturgy, right? Right. Well, let's, let's keep going on 96 here. So verse 3, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. It's just, I don't know. This is a great psalm. They're all great, but I like Psalm 96. So. We should do a podcast of just reading the psalms. <laughs> you know, just straight through. If you guys want that, let us know in the comments. Just to read it. It'll be five hours long, but it'll be good time. So, <laughs> Right. Word fitly spoken audio Bible coming soon. It, <laughs> it'll still be free like everything word fitly spoken does. Exactly. Believe me, if we could figure out a way to make merchandise free, we'd have those word fitly spoken t-shirts ready for you. <laughs> just give out because that's how we roll. A word fitly t-shirt cannon. The gospel's free, and so are we here at Word Fitly Spoken. <laughs> Thus ensuring we could never set up a Patreon, Zelwyn. I've, I've, I've cursed nah. us now. Oh, well. Well, it, it's, that's okay. We'll, we'll live. So. 
Sorry. Although I do think no, no, it's it's fine. I think it's interesting here that you know also in the context of Psalm ninety six, talking about how God is the only God, and this declaration of His attributes of who He is as God is also a part of worship. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that maybe we should emphasize a little bit more, especially in our prayer life as well. You know, actually not just petitioning God for things, but you know praising him declaring you know yeah. this is who you are this is what you have done right yeah and and then that's the thing again within our worship that we do rightly and we're supposed to learn something from that too with regard to prayer that prayer and you get this of course in the in the prayer of our lord as well the lord's prayer be our father that it's not simply asking for stuff and right. while we sometimes associate that with kind of the way a child prays, and I suppose there's something, we, we, we put a wholesome spin on that, right? Well, a child always asks his father, even if it's extravagant, so you should too. And I get what people are trying to say when they say that, but nevertheless, at times there, there's some time for meat. And meat would say that, uh, rather than milk, meat would say that, well, there is a right way to ask for things and a right way to address our creator. And so that we do move on and, and learn and grow more in the way in which we praise and worship God. Not taking away from a childlike faith or the worship of children by any means, but simply right. to say that as we mature in the faith, we understand that prayer is as much about praising God and acknowledging who He is and thanking Him for what He's done than it is about simply asking Him for things. And one of the best things we can do to keep ourselves humble to keep ourselves in perspective is both in public worship and in private prayer to keep ourselves focused upon the good that God has given us. So we thank God for, I mean, I don't even need to list it because you, it's too many things to even mention. You know, we go in all the way through segment three on this and you can do it all in your lives. And even thanking God for the trials that we face. Because even the trials that lay before us are in his providence for our good, as the scripture promises. So, of course, we acknowledge God for who he is. And part of our acknowledging God for who he is, is acknowledging what he has given us. Not only the forgiveness of sins, but all of what we would call first article gifts, right? Right, right. And perhaps even thanking him for the things that we don't even notice, that we're not even aware of, as the psalmist often does in in places. If we if we won't cry out, even the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, you know. But how much more right. should we cry out glory, cry holy unto the Lord, as people who know, who have been redeemed, and who understand where we were and what God has brought us out of? Yeah, something maybe to consider, you know, the next time that you pray, you know, just go through praising God, just thinking of as many of his titles, as many of his attributes as you can think of, you know, his eternity, his goodness, his faithfulness, his, I mean, answered, there's, I mean, they're literally infinite. I mean, you're never going to come up with all of them. And just praising God in that way and declaring what it is that he has done for his people, you know, maybe not even without asking for anything in particular, just praising him in that way, I think you'll find that there is a a life and a vitality to that kind of prayer that you know it will it will invigorate us because we are declaring God's mercies and God's glories and 
reminding ourselves in this way, you know, that he is our father, that he is the everlasting God, that he is the, you know, eternal father, whatever title we might think of for him. Certainly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is where Psalms, the original hymnal and greatest hymnal is is so beneficial. It teaches us so much about God. And if all we knew were his titles from the Psalms, even then that would be more than we could expound upon in our whole lives, right? As far as pondering. So you've got to read the Psalms, fam. Read the Psalms. Uh, (laughs) Read them regular. Yep. Yeah. And uh, for all of our debates on which hymnal is the best and so much talk of hymns and hymn companions and so on and so forth, just those are fine. Whatever you want to spend your money on, whatever you want to talk about, but don't forget the Psalms, uh, which are free. They're free free (laughs) and greater because they're directly inspired by God. So, you know, and really on, on, on that note, I would say, you know, thinking in terms of, as Paul uses psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, think of that primarily as a reference to the psalms. And then also think of the other biblical canticles as well. Uh, ponder those, because if the psalms are neglected, those other canticles are often even more, more neglected. neglected. Yeah. yeah. So there's, um, so, and you, and you have that in the Old Testament, you know, all the way up at the Mary's canticle. And then there are other debated songs, of course, within the gospels and the epistles as well. Sure, sure. All kinds of things to to chew on. Well, to maybe get us a little bit further through 96 here, because there are some other passages we want to talk about. Sure. But I do want to at least get to verse 9. So verse 7 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. And I think verse 9 in particular there, the worship of the Lord, is really one of the key takeaways that we want from this psalm. Because you'll notice, first of all, that it sets the word worship in parallel with the word tremble. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of worshiping the Lord and trembling before him, you know, know, fearing the Lord God for what he is, shows that this is this worship, this aspect of this response to what he has done. Yeah, and... And uh, on that same note, talking about the fear of the Lord, it does point toward a uh, reverential worship. And we haven't really gotten to the idea behind decently and in order yet, but the pattern is even laid down here because reverence implies something that is is respectable um, and worthy. I mean, to reverence something. You cannot reverence a thrice holy God with irreverent practices, can you? I no. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think you you've answered your own question. So Right, exactly. <laughs> when we realize uh, just who we're worshiping. I mean, he's a God who loves us. He's a God who is not far off, but he is still God and he is still holy. And he is worthy of of honor and reverence, fear. Then uh, that should again shade our worship and form our worship. And sometimes it unfortunately doesn't. Well, and I think something also to point out here, too, is that idea of the splendor of holiness and worshiping God in the splendor of holiness, that the way that we live as Christians um, is also an aspect of worship, and that to put on that garment of holiness, you know, to put on Christ through our baptisms, through all those sorts of things, 
and to live as Christians is itself showing that reverence and that fear for God, that mm. we do tremble before him by being holy, by living holy lives, you know, by being sanctified also in our minds, as Paul says. Well, there, you know, there it is. And that's a very good point that the person we are within worship for us, that's to say on Sunday mornings during the divine service should be the same person that we are the rest of the week. Right. That the words we're saying are sincere and that what we receive from God is going to both empower and inform us throughout the week until we meet God again uh, in, in that service. That, yeah, th- there is a degree of, of truth in saying that the church is full of hypocrites insofar as the church is the hospital for sinners, but we ought to have the same reverence for God in our daily lives as we do on Sundays. That that you can have the most beautiful high mass, you know, whatever you want to call it, in the world on Sunday morning and appreciate the art and the beauty of that and the ceremony all of these good things that can and do serve God and or serve the worship of the church. And yet if you come to that apart from faith and it is not a living faith, a, a faith that exists, you know, not just in feelings and not just a faith of the eyes on Sunday morning, then that worship will profit you nothing. Right. Yeah. So it, proper worship is, is, is going on continually and, and, and then, pr- of course, proper worship on Sunday is giving you forgiveness and strength needed for our daily walk in fear and admonition of the Lord. But now we're minor prophets posting. Right. <laughs> we're going back to some early episodes, too, right? That's, that's right. That's right. I mean, because I just, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about, like, Amos. Of course, Amos is is my boy. But... You know, this idea of come and offer your worship every three days for so you love to do, O Israel. You know, this this idea of Israel who has wandered so far away from, you know, what is right and what is holy and what is true, and yet they continue to worship in a way that is ultimately hypocritical. Yeah, it's hypocritical because of their disposition. Right. There's, there's, the, there's the flip side to it where people would say, well, we jettisoned all of these old rituals. And so our worship is more sincere (laughs) and less people think that that's what I'm talking about. It's absolutely not because that kind of worship can arguably more easily lead itself to this kind of flippancy that we talk about just as, just as much as anything else can to where, to where, but we'll get into that a little bit more uh, when we talk about liturgy in the third segment. Suffice it to say that whichever side you fall on the worship wars, the right side or the wrong side, <laughs> if you don't have faith, if there is no faith, no fruit can be more. You, you cannot produce right. fruit apart from faith, and, you, and apart from faith, you will not receive any benefits from worship. Well, apart from faith, we have no promise that God will hear. Right, and apart from faith, you have no salvation. <laughs> So to put to put new, none too, <laughs> too fine a point none on too it. fine a point on it. I mean, can the Holy Spirit dwell in a temple where there's no faith? No, no, of course not. I mean, that is that's what that's that's how the Holy Spirit is received into the heart. Yes, through baptism and all that. You you all know what I mean. <laughs> Remember, folks, the sacraments require faith too. That's what we say, and the sacraments <laughs> give faith. The sacraments give faith. And that faith lays hold of the benefits of God. Don't forget that. 
that right. back in my day, Lutherans rejected ex opere operato. And uh, <laughs> I guess, I guess. Pepper, Pepperidge Farms remembers. Pepperidge Farm remembers. And suffice it to say, even if you're a full-blown papist or orthodox, nobody is going to sit here and say that these things are ultimately going to benefit you apart from faith, apart from actually believing, uh, sincerely believing. And so, yeah, um, we can say that the heart and soul of worship is faith, which receives these things. But again, if we're not receiving them rightly, if we're receiving them with unbelieving hearts, then regardless of if, again, like I say, most beautiful, reverent, liturgical worship you can find, or some dubstep praise service, you know, somewhere in the <laughs> in the deep south, somewhere. It doesn't matter because if I haven't if I don't have faith, I don't have love, I got nothing. I'm I'm just trying to imagine how that would work, Willie. Is is the drop like the absolution or is it, you know, <laughs> let's not give them any ideas. <laughs> now a synth wave mass on the other hand, now you got my attention. <laughs> now we're talking about something. <laughs> right. If you can get like a nice Casio or a, or a, or a, or a good Moog, uh, a Moog synth- synthesizer, then maybe, maybe we'll get something going. Little, <laughs> even, even, it, would, it would settle for a Roland if I could. <laughs> so, all right. Any, uh, any more of the Bible here uh, as we're heading up towards the, the top of the break or the top of the segment? Excuse me, bottom of the segment. Bottom of the segment, whatever you want to call it. I think one of the things that we should talk about is, you know, when we misplace this kind of worship and the kind of the, the negative aspect of all of this. But as far as the, the positive side, I mean, you see throughout the Bible, I mean, like in Matthew 2, for example, with the Magi falling down and worshiping the Lord. So, you know, the, the gestures which mm-hmm. correspond to the, the faith, which is worshiping as well as like in Revelation 5, where the elders cast down their crowns and worship the Lord in that way. You know, mm-hmm. so this, this idea that not only our lives, but also our very acts, like the very physical gestures which we have also contribute. To there that. are certain, shall we say, universal gestures of worship and right. bowing, which is the early form, kneeling, you know, genuflection is going to come a little later, later in liturgical history, but prostration certainly just falling on our knees before the Lord is a, is, is a universal symbol of worship, uh, so much so that it's even used in the negative examples, like Acts right. 10, where Cornelius mm-hmm. falls at Peter's feet, for example, or uh, the angel in, in Revelation where John gets all discombobulated and, and tries to worship him. The gestures of worship are so obvious that even in instances of false worship, they use the same gestures. Like, and and what does it say though? To, to fall at someone's feet, what is that, what is that ultimately acknowledging that we are lower than you? That honor is due to you who are greater than me. And now I'm making myself physically less than you, physically lower than you because you are so great. Right. Well, even even the very postures of our prayer, for example, you know, talk, you know, bespeak this kind of reverence in the same way, because like maybe you want to hold your hands out in the way that the pastor often does at the altar, uh, the Oran's position, as it's called, this idea that we are receiving something from the Lord, it's like holding your hands out to receive something because the Lord is the one who is the giver. 
Or, you know, maybe we want to go the more medieval route and fold our hands as a way of showing our our fealty, our our loyalty to the Lord, because that was the way that, you know, they showed their actual subservience to their to their feudal lords was to fold their hands in that way. So, I mean, the, the postures which we use in prayer and in worship should speak something about what, you know, what it is that's actually happening there. Just remember, it's an invalid mass if your thumbs are improperly crossed. It's got to go right over left or your prayers cannot ascend. It's just, just the rules. I didn't make them up. Well, all right, we're at break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. The word of the Lord says, Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth. You can check out all of the Word Fitly Spoken podcasts on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcast app. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to Word Fitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about worship. Well, we went through our definitions. We talked about the biblical understanding of worship. We took a long look at Psalm 96 and a, and a briefer look at some other passages. And now we're going to talk about that subject that we know most of you tuned in for. That's the subject of the liturgy in the Lutheran Church. Zellwin, my question is, what is page 15 and why is it the crown of Lutheran uh, liturgies in English? That's um... <laughs> well, considering you still use it for your worship, I can see where you're coming from, Willie. So this is true. St. Paul's holding on to that red, uh, that red liturgy. We love it. <laughs> Not the maroon one. Yeah. Uh... Uh, you don't hear me complaining. No, it's 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 a good it's a good liturgy, and we still use the TLH agenda too, the liturgy book as well. So <laughs> there you go. Let us all <laughs> let us all tremble in fear, but <laughs> <laughs> that's not. And to be fair, not casting aspersions on LSB at all because we do use LSB for hymns, and occasionally, of course, we'll still use the agenda and occasionally the altar book for the LSB too. So I am right. uh, not coming down on it. Please don't write letters, Paul Graham. So, yes, we are. But we're here to talk about the liturgy and why it's important and why we come from the perspective that we do. And and so what is liturgy? Does it have any benefit and does it matter? I do think it matters. I mean, because what we're talking about, of course, is an orderly way of worship. God, of course, being a God of order. And when we talk about the idea of liturgy itself being, you know, this this idea of, you know, the, the, the public benefit, you know, what God is actually doing for his people and the way that we ex- express that, 
I think it's all going to be very beneficial for us because it helps us to worship in a way that is orderly and that does call to mind all of those things which are beneficial for us. So, you know, when we're talking about the, the God coming to us and, you know, the, what, being reminded of that, the liturgy as we have, it also helps us to respond in a way that is godly and is uh, beneficial for our souls. So, I mean, what do you want to add to that, Willie? No, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the liturgy serves as a teaching tool. It's a tool to ensure that our worship is God-pleasing and also beneficial for us as recipients of God's gifts. It does not necessarily appeal to emotion, or at least it doesn't depend upon that. It does not depend upon the whims of time. It does not, and truly I mean this, does not depend upon the whims of culture either. That a historic liturgy, the language can change, and it has, but the essence doesn't need to change. And we don't, when we think about worship in the context of, say, like what I used to do, which would be Spanish work or Swahili or Russian or whatever, <laughs> that the liturgy can stay the same, but the language used changes. And that's been sure. functionally the position of the Eastern Orthodox churches as well, you know, more or less. So that's not new. We don't have to reinvent the wheel for every other group. There, do, there does need to be a African liturgy, quote unquote, or a Hispanic liturgy. And unfortunately, sometimes when we, when the gurus out there say that, they don't really mean a, a, a true historical liturgical approach to worship. They simply mean, well, this ethnic group has to worship like Pentecostals because that's how they worship, which, which I think is, is just, and I don't think, I know it's false. It's, it's a false thing in, in, in most of those cases. And, and what a horrible thing to say and what a horrible way in which to divide the church. The liturgy, the common service, has a way of uniting the church. It is a way to unite the church and maybe even the best way for us to unite the church. That even where language divides, our services are similar enough that, that you can actually say, oh, we, we are actually the same church body. I, sure. I do not understand this need to invent liturgies, which was popular even among conservative guys like in the 70s and, and such. I don't understand that. I've seen churches with 20-some-odd liturgies. Somebody tell me the advantage to that. Variety is not advantage. Variety is just vanity. What we have is is a, is a tool of great educational benefit, of great spiritual benefit, and of great Catholic benefit in, in the best sense of the word, a universal benefit whereby we might be united in, in common worship and in common practice. And, I mean, look me in the eye and tell me that's a bad thing. I can't do it, fam. Can't be done. <laughs> right, right. But no, but, no, no. We need a we need a octogenarian liturgy and a children's liturgy and this or that or the other. Bah, bah, humbug. <laughs> well, I think you know, talking about this idea of Catholicity and you know being the same across you know languages and these kinds of other barriers. You know, you also mentioned this idea of you know emotion and and the liturgy not necessarily appealing to the emotions. But I think that's actually a helpful thing because the liturgy can actually, you know, encapsulate a whole range of emotional experiences that we might have 
that a way that, you know, what we might call a happy clappy kind of worship cannot. You know, the, mm-hmm. the idea of how we can have something like Psalm 150 with its kind of, you know, upbeat, you know, praise the Lord with these songs and trumpets and cymbals, but also encapsulate Psalm 88 with its, you know, have you forsaken me, O Lord? And it is still the same liturgy, I think shows the great strength of what we have as as Lutherans. I think maybe the best way to explain this is, you know, we've all been to those times where, you know, we really feel caught up in the liturgy, you know, that time of great emotion, that time of great thanksgiving. But, you know, you can also think of those times of great tragedy, and yet the the same words, the same liturgy speaks to both of those situations. Yeah, and even the uh, liturgical calendar brings us through these events in in a certain way, right? The the right. dark depths of Good Friday give way to the joys of Easter, you know, uh, that would be the most basic example, but yeah, all, all throughout that, there is a place for emotion. And I think reflection right. upon the liturgy and certainly upon the propers for the day gives way to that. Like it's, if you're not moved at some point in your Christian life, you know, check yourself to see if you're still flesh and blood. <laughs> some of this should get a reaction out of you. Right. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. What we're cautioning against is just this pursuit of emotional experience for its own sake. Which, unfortunately, even liturgical worship can descend into. Yes. Which is kind of what you were talking about with, you know, this making things up or maybe even doing it and saying, you know, this is, you know, because it is the liturgy, therefore I should feel a certain way. Or, you know, Good Friday makes me feel one way and then I have to feel a different way on Easter. That's not really the point of what I'm getting at. The point is, is that this liturgy can speak to both of those situations mm-hmm. while remaining functionally the same. Correct. Yes. Right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and the nuts and bolts are always the same from week to week in that in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the word works the way it wants to work, right? The way the Holy right. Spirit chooses. And so, yeah, that, that's very good. So obviously benefits outweigh the perceived um, throwbacks. But even amongst our ranks, there is a a war that goes on. I think that we can make too much of the worship wars. And I mean that without diminishing the necessity of keeping pure worship. But there is a point to where we can argue about every little jot and tittle of the liturgy and, and completely miss the forest for the trees. Uh, that that, that can certainly happen to where, you know, we're trying to just outmass each other or just always bogged bogged down in the minutia of it. And and as a hobby or even as a historical discipline, I think that that some of this stuff is well placed. But we have to understand that the liturgy occurs in and with people who are imperfect. So the pastor is going to stutter. He's going to turn counterclockwise when he should turn clockwise. He may even forget and put his left thumb over his right. You might come to worship and the pyramids aren't changed. You have the wrong color, but you know what? Life goes on. (laughs) Invalid mass. (laughs) You know, and there is a bit of, of a cage stage that happens when people are converted over to this kind of worship. It happens sometimes. And they go on this quest for purity and that's good, but the zeal can sometimes be can be misplaced. 
and especially in this day and age of social media, podcasting, <laughs> Instagram, Facebook, and other things. Touche. Yeah. Zeal can quickly turn into vitriol and, and hatred for our for your brother, and don't let that happen. And if you're miserable all the time because of the bad things that you see out there in the broader church, it's it's gonna it's gonna hurt your soul. So try to focus on the word of God, the good things that he's giving you in the divine liturgy. Live in harmony with your brothers and sisters where they're actually at. That's the people in your local congregation. And understand right. that, that that we're all sinners, all imperfect, and we're all we're all working toward uh, the same goal together. Again, not to diminish it, but just to say that angry internet Lutheran, it's going to be okay. Just take a deep breath. Jesus uh, is alive. Yeah, and, yeah, and on either side, because frankly, we you know I, I pick upon the angry liturgical guy because those are my these are my people. <laughs> you know, these are my brothers, but we, but frankly, we do see a lot of, how do we want to put this untoward talk from the other side of the aisle, the people who don't like the historic liturgy, who think that it harms the church or somehow stunts her growth. They are becoming more and more vocal and, and just really more and more sharp tongued toward the liturgical types. That's, that's no good either. They don't listen Often to our position, perhaps sometimes we're not good at articulating our position. But the one thing we do have is, is really rather objective. It has been the position of the church for millennia, and I do think there's wisdom in the church. But also, the liturgy has bound the church together for so long, and it unites us not with only the church here today, but the church, the ancient church up until now. And I don't think we can discount that. I think that's a very important thing. Honor thy father and thy mother is what the Lord God Jehovah says to do. And I think that we do that with right worship. I think to say that what grandma and grandpa did in church is passe. It's a product of, of a Germanic culture, which is not true at all when it comes to the liturgy, that that is unintentionally disparaging our fathers and mothers. And and I do wish that we would be a little bit more careful when we want to jettison these things. Now, Zelwyn, why might I say that it's unfair to call the liturgy German? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? <laughs> or perhaps you think it's German. What we really mean is it's 100% Finnish. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Finno-Ugardic, but... That's right. No, I, it, the idea, because, you know, when we talk about our... Lutheranism, you know, we often get associated with being a Germanic culture and, you know, rightly or wrongly, whatever you want to take away from that. And I think because of that, we might see our particular way of worshiping as being uniquely German or uniquely Lutheran, which is a bit of a misnomer. I mean, there are aspects of it that are kind of unique to Lutheranism, but the liturgy as we have it is really a it kind of held in common with West, the Western Church in general. Yeah, up until about the Reformation. And if anything, a lot of our English is borrowed from the Book of Common Prayer, right? You know, the parts theologically that we can agree with. I mean, yeah, you're right. There are some German peculiar peculiarities, but I suppose really you see those more when, uh, and I feel like I need to cross myself, but when you see something like a polka mass, um, sure. 
or <laughs> but everybody makes fun of the polka mask. Nobody says anything about like a mariachi mask or a or a uh, reggaeton mask. There's probably one going on there. There's a salsa mask. I don't know. I can't a prove synth it. Wave but, mask. But, but we, we go after the polka mask because it's easy to do. But it's really funny because there is a mariachi mask, and I know some of the people associated with it, good people. But I think that's a little bit unfair to say that. Well, here's a polka mask, so that's Germanic and it's bad. But here's a mariachi mask. It's Mexican and it's okay. It's the same principle. <laughs> And again, not disparaging that, but it does just that that does strike an odd tone because those are tailored to specific regional musical varieties. Sure. But most sure. of our Germanic stuff is found in things like sauerkraut suppers and and even institutionally, we are guilty of this. Well, we're the German church. We're Germans. Dear members of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, whose names are not Roland Ziegler, you are Americans. Okay, you're Americans. It's okay to to admit you're an American and and you're Anglophone for the most part. So <laughs> it's it's going to be okay. I understand you want to hold on to the roots. That is very good, but you know it only feeds this accusation that we are too Germanic. And people, I think you could make a case that a sauerkraut supper it could be foreign to someone who's not of German extraction. That's fair, but you can't say sure. that about the divine liturgy. I just, in the main, it, it exists outside of that too. Like you say, Western Christendom. And right. so right. it's just a little bit humorous to me to see kind of some of the double standards applied again. Mariachi mass people love you. Polka mass people love you. Don't get it, but I love you. And and that's fine. I'm, I'm just saying if there's going to be equity, let there be equity in all things, you know, <laughs> as Shakespeare said, <laughs> as Shakespeare put it, using equity in an interesting way, but let there be equality, you know, around the board if we're going to have it. <laughs> so that that's where we are. Anyway, Zellan, what else do we want to talk about with, with the liturgy here? Well, and maybe, maybe one of the things to emphasize too, is that the liturgy does have a biblical basis. So it's not even just a Western Christianity kind of thing but it is really rooted in the Bible, which is frankly why we should still preserve it. I know the the fact that we draw our words from the Bible, that we draw some of our practices, you know, directly from the Bible, like in Ezra three, which we read at the beginning of the episode with their speaking responsively. So that is certainly a practice which continues. And you also have uh, Peter in Acts 10 going up to prayer at a certain time. So this idea of structure within our worship, structure within our devotion, being a inheritance that we have from the living word of God. I think all of these things point to the fact that liturgy is not just your peculiarities, it's like you say, it's not just your cultural hang-ups, but it is actually the way that God has, you know, God comes to us in the way that we worship him. You know, there should be order within worship. There should be this kind of rhythm to the way that we uh, think about the the mercies of God. Yeah, and that's the thing uh, with a lot of modern worship. It just becomes chaos. Everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, what they feel led to do. I feel like I need to go back and apologize to the polka and mariachi masses again, because at least they are done decently and in order, right? At least they're they're still following the ordo. I just want to be clear on that. I don't like to cause undue offense. I like to poke people when I can, but uh, at least they are following the order. They they are much closer to a traditional Lutheran service than 
a lot of the broader Pentecostal style worship, we'll say. The Pentecostal style worship, I don't think we can biblically say is of the Spirit of God. Because order, or at least lack of chaos, is is evidence that the Spirit's there. Yeah, and the, like having in the in the times of the apostles of having someone to interpret, you know, whatever was being said, so that all could understand and speak in turn. This idea of a decency and an order is something that the liturgy encapsulates. So, absolutely. And you know, that being said, as we're coming up kind of at the end of the podcast. I do think that when it comes to the liturgy, that just sort of going through the motions as far as uh, the pastor's perspective won't do either. We need to, as pastors, also pay attention to what we do. And I think that doing the liturgy well, not I don't mean flowery or anything like that, but doing it well is important. That sure. That we have been called to stand here in this stead, and so we should conduct it reverently too. And and so that's why the study of rubrics and things, although we make jokes every now and then, study of the rubrics and the order of service and everything behind the liturgy is very important for the pastor. You're just trying to cover all your bases again. That's I right. Understand. That's right. No, but it, it, in all in all fairness, <laughs> it, it's true. We, we ought to think about that, that we have been placed in this. What a privilege it is to hold this office. We should exercise it with, with dignity and with intention you know good in, good intentions and 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 in order i mean i shouldn't say good intentions everybody has good intentions road to hell and whatnot <laughs> but to actually say this is this is the way handed down to us let us take up the mantle of our fathers and make them proud for they're now saints in heaven so is that one any last words i think as we're coming to a close here the the thing to take away from all of this is that you know as we approach the, the as we approach worship and receive the lord's gifts we want to remember that you know our reverence the way that we come toward him and give him thanks for what he has done is very much a part of what it means to worship the lord and as long as we are doing that reverently and indecently and in good order you know and wearing the splendor of holiness as it were we will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and give thanks to him for his many blessings that he has given us. So, Amen. So you're starting on page 15 when? <laughs> well, page 183, right? <laughs> Judges, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. All right. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand.